Polling shows a majority of Americans support the Supreme Court's latest Second Amendment ruling. Plus, a conversation with Timothy Lighton on how guns will impact the Senate runoff. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gatowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter today. It comes out every Friday, and uh, you'll get updates on the latest in gun news across the country, uh, stuff you won't find anywhere else. It's often exclusive reporting that we do, uh, that we focus on at The Reload. And if you want to dive deeper than just that free newsletter, you can also purchase a membership where you'll get exclusive access to hundreds of stories that you literally can't find anywhere else because they are member exclusive pieces. And you'll also get this podcast a day early, as well as the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment, which we should have some of those coming up again real soon for you guys. I always enjoy doing those. Uh, but this week we are talking about the Georgia runoffs. We're looking ahead to those. Uh, it's a, uh, we're that race. There's only one this time around, but Uh, It's going to be a big one that determines the ultimate control of the Senate, whether it's 50-50 or 51-49 in favor of Democrats. And so uh, we have somebody from Georgia, an expert, a professor at Georgia State University. Uh, Tim Layton is on with us to discuss uh, the events in that state. How are are you doing, uh, Tim? How How are things down there? Uh, in is it the peach state? Is that right? Or is that just the the fruit, the official the, fruit? Right? The peach state. That's right. We're doing fine. Okay. And can you tell people just a little bit more about yourself and your background? Yeah, I'm a professor of law at Georgia State University College of Law, and I write primarily about uh, civil liability and public policy and public health. And among the things I've written about is for the last 25 years, I've been writing about uh, lawsuits against the firearms industry, both sellers and manufacturers, federal immunity, Second Amendment rights and the issues surrounding that. Uh, and I also generally just follow gun control and gun politics. Yep. And I'm sure you're seeing all the uh, campaign ads for the last. I mean, you guys get it just constantly because of this runoff system uh, and that none of these candidates can ever seem to get 50% in the initial election. So you, you guys get the extended election season there, right? Yeah. Basically, we just turn off the phone six months before every election and kind of don't hook up the landline until we're done. <laughs> uh, but every every UGA game and and every uh, you know Atlanta Falcons game, you gotta that two all the ads are are commercials for campaigns. I'd imagine, right? That's right. Yes, uh, but so we we've got now uh, some of your elections were finished, and we'll talk a little bit about, for instance, the gubernatorial election there between Kemp and Stacey Abrams, and how how that all went out. But first off, we want to focus on the Senate election. Incumbent Democrat uh, Raphael Warnock was not quite able to get to 50 percent during the general election. And so he now heads to a runoff with challenger uh, Herschel Walker, who's a Republican, backed by Donald Trump. Um, And, uh, you know, but Warnock was ahead by a couple points, right, Um, in the general election and Polling seems to indicate that he still has a lead at this point. Is that, is that the baseline of what we're seeing? Yeah, I don't know if he was ahead a couple points. I mean, he was ahead by a very Maybe. slim margin. They both came in right. under 50%. So we're talking about, at least in the general election, a kind of razor-thin margin. The runoff election, he seems to be pulling a couple points ahead based on early mm. polling about voter turnout. But we still have some time to go. And 
I just, you know, the general election was extremely close. Yeah, yeah, correct. And and there was a libertarian candidate that took like 2% of the vote, something around there. Uh, and that's why Warnock was not quite able to reach that 50, 50% plus one vote margin that you need. In Either Georgia. Warnock or Walker in that case, right? We right. don't know which way the libertarian voters would have gone or if they would have turned out without that alternative. Right. That's a, that's a very good point. Uh, perhaps some of those voters are more Walker leaning than Warnock leaning. I guess that's what, that's exactly what we're going to find out here in this, in this runoff. But uh, that's, that's why we're in this situation. And that's sort of the state of play right now. Warnock seems to be, he was ahead in the vote tally for general. He seems to be polling ahead a little bit um, in the runoff right now. But, but, uh, you know, we want to focus obviously on gun politics here. How much have you seen the issue play a role in the Warnock uh, Walker election in particular thus far? You know, firearms rights and gun control always plays a role in Georgia politics. It's at the top of the statewide uh, political agenda year in and year out. Um, that and religious liberty are really at the very top of the agenda. And you see pretty much in every legislative session movement on those things. There's gridlock on a lot of issues, but when it comes to firearms rights and gun control, there's always movement. And in Georgia, in particular, in the direction of gun rights, we've had a steady stream of victories for gun rights advocates at the state level. So it always plays a role. I think that what we're looking at in the Warnock Walker runoff is, is that, you know, a lot of people are already kind of locked into their positions. So during the general election, it's important to create that turnout, let people know where you stand on the issues. Warnock has situated himself very clearly as pro-gun control and Walker is very clearly pro-advancing for gun rights. And the question now is how to kind of eke out a margin. And it's unclear to me whether or not um, firearms laws, uh, both gun rights and gun control, are likely to actually be a big player in determining that margin. I think they've been very important in sort of building the base for both of, the, both of these campaigns. But it looks like from recent polling, actually, that there are a lot of other issues on the statewide agenda that people care about more, and that what we're talking about is those swing voters in the middle. Um, and it's not clear that they are going to be motivated by gun issues. You know, ironically, one reason for that might be that the gun um, rights movement has been so strong here in Georgia with the governor signing permitless carry in some ways uh, that along with the Bruin decision that came down from the Supreme Court, the Second Amendment decision that um, struck down New York's uh, carry laws, uh, the permit carry laws. It's possible that um, those victories have taken a little bit of the wind out of the sails of advocates for firearms rights. And in the sense that, you know, if what it takes to get people to turn out to vote is to be kind of riled up about something, they may be a little less riled up and feeling a little bit more confident about the position of gun rights in America right now, and in particular in Georgia. And that might be a slightly less of a motivator to get people out. On the other side, we have this steady string of, you know, sort of routine mass shootings coverage in the media and the national media and also here in Georgia. And that may act as a motivator at the margins. So it's a little hard to tell so far, but it's possible that gun rights might come out weighing a little stronger uh, or gun control might come out weighing a little stronger for Warnock. Um, but keep in mind, there are other things on the statewide agenda that may be calling people's attention more, especially because gun rights advocates have had so many victories here recently. Yeah, th those are all very good points, I think, as far as how how this issue impacts the turnout in, in the both in the general election and now in this runoff. Because I, I do think, uh, you know, and, and we'll get to the governor's race a little bit later, but but that really had guns more at the center of the, the campaign because you had Kemp push through his promised uh, permitless carry bill. 
which went into effect in Georgia. And then obviously you had Stacey Abrams criticizing that move. And there was a there's even, you know, they canceled a music festival in Atlanta over this change. And so that was part of the the campaign. And and we'll talk about that stuff later. But it seems to me um, in the senatorial race, uh, it hasn't been as central of an issue. Certainly there's a clear contrast, like you talked about, because uh, actually and Warnock seems to be more aggressively pursuing gun control uh, almost uh, counterintuitively than his counterpart uh, Ossoff, who's the other Democrat that was elected in 2020, but isn't up for re-election this year, um, uh, because Warnock has signed on as a co-sponsor for the Senate's version of the assault weapons ban, the you know ban on AR-15s and AK-47s and other firearms, uh, whereas Ossoff hasn't done that. Uh, and then on the other side, you have Walker, who's sort of a general. He's sort of, he's like running as generic Republican guy. Uh, with with the football background and he's like celebrity guy, but his policy positions are pretty, uh, you know, what you would, you know, not very well developed. Like his his campaign website doesn't talk much about guns, and so uh, you know, or any specific policies that he wants to implement. But uh, and so I, I'm wondering about the the state of, for instance, the advertising there that you're seeing from these campaigns. Are either one of them focusing on the gun issue? You know, for sure, Warnock is focusing on the gun issue. You know, Warnock's got kind of a collection of standard Democratic issues. He's talking about abortion rights and reproductive rights. He's talking about health care. He's talking about the economy and he's talking about uh, gun control. I think on the Walker side is where you're seeing something that's a little bit outside the normal playbook. So it's not unusual that Warnock would be featuring gun control in his campaign ads and his television ads, because that's really kind of bread and butter for a lot of national Democrats in terms of their platform. But Walker, in some sense, has fronted two issues. Uh, I don't know whether this has been his own by design or whether or not he's just sort of fallen into them. One is, of course, his loyalty to Donald Trump. And I think that um, that's probably a liability for him at this point, because I think that there are a lot of people uh, in the Republican base who are strong supporters of Donald Trump. And there are lots of people on the Democratic side who are strong opponents. And then the question is, well, where are the swing voters? And the fact of the matter is, in Georgia, a lot of the swing voters are Republican voters who are pro the Republican agenda, but not so happy with Donald Trump. And that probably explains why it is that Kemp had such an easy time getting over the line compared to Walker. And he was polling way ahead of Walker. Um, And that's, I think, in part due to the fact that he was carrying with him some swing voters on the Republican side. The other thing that sort of Walker either came out, I think he sort of put himself out front on this and then it kind of got ahead of him, which is on the issue of abortion rights. He came out kind of very strong and in some ways extreme opinions, even for Georgia, on uh, restrictions on abortion, uh, on abortion access. And then, of course, the national press has raised questions about his own personal history with regard to those things. And I think those are things that probably didn't serve him so well. And so in that sense, gun, you know, gun rights has not played a prominent role in his campaign in a way that it would normally if you had sort of a mainstream Republican running against a mainstream Democrat. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like that's uh, what I've seen from from outside the state as well is, you know, uh, Warnock seems to be leaning a little more into gun control than uh, you might expect from a, a Democrat in Georgia, but uh, but certainly not outside of the what you you get from national Democrats, uh, you know, in general. And then Walker is running much less of an issue focused campaign outside of uh, and really more of a personality driven campaign, right? Yeah, which makes sense to a certain degree, right? He's he's a celebrity candidate. Um, and, and so that's what comes with that. But but yeah, it, it seems to be at the cost of de-emphasizing uh, 
you know, issues that might appeal to to some of those Republican swing voters like um, gun rights. I think, and so, I think uh, that's true. And I think, you know, Warnock's trying to peel off a handful of uh, Republican swing voters based on the sort of anybody but Trump attitude. But the other thing to keep in mind is, is that uh, one thing that Warnock's doing, and Ossoff certainly did this in his race, they're playing a turnout game. So they're not just playing for swing voters. They're playing to actually build out their base and get a larger turnout. And, you know, there are a lot of different ways to go around swinging a state like Georgia. And one is to try to pick off the middle. Um, and if that's, if that's the case, then as a Democrat, you'd want to be very careful about to coming out too strong on gun control. But the other is to try and turn out your base um, and sort of expand to the left. And if that's the case, then I think in urban centers like um, Atlanta or sort of more liberal areas like Athens, and there aren't a huge number of other places where the base is strong, but those two places in particular, um, especially in Atlanta where gun violence is a big issue, um, you have a large urban uh, voting base that are democratic, uh, many of whom, even if they're firearms owners, are not averse to gun control uh, and just have a different relationship to the issue. And so Warnock may be coming out swinging a lot harder on the issue in part for that reason. Yeah, that's a good point. Because, And I do remember Ossoff's campaign in 2020, they actually moderated their uh, position on guns depending on where they were running ads. I haven't seen any uh, news to that effect in in this race for Warnock, but but it certainly makes a lot of sense that, especially in a runoff where you're trying to, where you really are more trying to turn out your base than, uh, than, you know, convince swing biters, voters who might show up, uh, you know, you know, in a general election, they might not be there in a, in a runout election, a runoff election. Sorry. And so, uh, yeah, that certainly makes sense. I, I think that, I think that's very true. You see this on the Republican side as well. You know, if you go up into upstate Georgia or, uh, you go into rural districts in the South, you see a lot of lawn signs with AR-15 platform weapons kind of on the lawn sign with the political candidate's name. That's not the kind of Republican advertising you see in, in Atlanta. You know, Atlanta, hmm. uh, in Atlanta Republicans, whether they're statewide or local, are running on a business platform, strong economy. Gun rights are certainly part of that, but you don't have like rallies where people are talking about the symbolism of, you know, carrying an AR-15 platform yeah. weapon in public as a sort of essential feature of liberty. And so there's a huge variation in, in both parties in terms of what the appeal and what the message is uh, around guns like everything else and what's emphasized and what's not. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the things I'm wondering about beyond the campaigns themselves is, uh, you know, we have a new piece that on the reload talking about the outside groups and their spending. And what's really fascinating to me is that so the NRA has gotten into this race. Spe they've spent a couple million dollars at this point on advertising. Uh, to boost Walker and and to uh, attack Warnock, uh, which <clears throat> you know it makes sense. But but you know they're so they're involved. They're spending money, uh, but at the same time, you're not seeing the gun control groups do any of that. Apparently, they're they're just not getting involved in this race at all. At least yet, not to this point. Uh, do you have any insight as to why that why that might be? Yeah, I don't know whether it's true that the gun control groups have not gotten involved. I just think that there may be a different strategy going on here. I think a lot of people are asking this question, so we don't know for sure. But it may be that the NRA and gun rights groups nationally are looking to basically reach people through advertising, uh, especially, for instance, in sort of far-flung rural districts. And so media and television are important, and that involves a lot of heavy-duty spending really to get any impact at all. You know, If you're going to hit the airwaves, you have to hit them pretty hard. On the other side, it may be that gun control groups are looking more to mobilize urban voters. And they may be, and I've seen this in the press, spending a lot more time just trying to organize volunteers to go out and kind of turn out the vote. I'll just give you an example. You know, we live in a heavily Democratic district in Atlanta, and we've been getting, you know, two or three letters a day from people all over the country 
people we'd never heard of who are basically writing us personal letters, postcards on the back that says, please turn out to vote in the Georgia elections. And so I think a lot of that effort is being mobilized by progressive groups, including gun control groups, but that's not the kind of spending that you need in order to get advertising. That's kind of community organizing, but I think there's a lot of effort yeah. going in there. Okay. That's interesting. So you're, you're saying that uh, obviously the way we know wh whether the groups are spending in races is based off their FEC filings and you only have to file those reports for certain kinds of activities like buying ads or donating directly to candidates or uh, donating staff time to candidates campaigns, uh, but you don't necessarily have to disclose those expenditures if they're just for things like uh, a generic effort to get out the vote. That's not, you know, a partisan effort, not not an attempt to organize with a camp particular campaign. But if you're just trying to get your voters out out to vote, that's not necessarily going to show up on an FEC filing. So that that's interesting. So you think they're instead of focusing on ads and mailers or things like that, they're focused on get out the vote operations that are ostensibly nonpartisan. Yeah, I don't even know if they're nonpartisan. I just think a lot of them don't require spending cash. So, you know, I think we're getting a lot, I'm getting a postcard a day from some volunteer in Portland, Oregon, or Minnesota, you know, Minneapolis, Minnesota, who's sort of joined up to help the Democratic Party. And they are sending me, they're shooting off, you know, X number of, of postcards to pre, you know, to predetermined addresses in democratically leaning voting districts in Atlanta. And, that may not even be a campaign expenditure, although it's a campaign effort. I suspect that gun control groups are mobilizing in this way and that they're playing a role in the campaign. They may just be not be cutting checks in order to do it. Yeah. Um, and and like I said, there are ways you can mobilize voters without having to report to the FEC what you're, what you're doing exactly or what you're spending. Um, and so perhaps they're doing that, but it does still seem you know, whether or not they're doing get out the vote efforts, uh, as you described, like it seems odd to just cede the rest of the ground there to the, the NRA. Doesn't well, it? It, it may be that actually that the gun control groups think that they'd probably be better off not coming out swinging too hard in Georgia on gun control. And then it, mm. they'd probably ra rather let sort of Walker get out ahead of himself on abortion rights or on his association with Donald Trump. And then, in fact, the best way to advance their cause is to you know, basically let those other issues play out. Because as I said, I think everybody knows we're playing for swing voters here at the margin uh, or, or at the base. As I, There may be uh, activities going on in terms of mobilizing the base, but I don't know. And again, all of this is speculation because we don't really have uh, a lot of insight as to sort of what the gun control groups are thinking about in terms of their strategy in this particular race. Mm -hmm. Sure, but we do have the what they're spending money on. And it's for the, sure. Or at least what they're not spending money on. It's a good which question. Is, which is interesting. Uh, you know, I wonder if they just maybe feel like, I mean, it's certainly, like you said, they have at times uh, tried to focus on issues that were more pertinent to a campaign than guns, even though they're using funds from their, you know, from Everytown or Giffords, they might run ads that are more about abortion rights than they are about gun restrictions. They They certainly did that throughout the midterm elections, and they've done that in the, the 2020 elections as well with, you know, focusing on uh, health care was, was one of the big ones in 2020. They put money into ads that talked about health care instead of gun policy, uh, or at least tried to connect the two in some way. They did that a lot with abortion this time around. And so it's interesting to see that they're, uh, even if they do believe there's a better strategy to put forth than going hard on gun control in Georgia, 
they could spend money on those sort of abortion ads or attack ads against Walker for his positions or what have you. And they're just not doing it to this point. Maybe they're saving up uh, time. I mean, there's not a lot of time, uh, right, in these ads, that, in this, these elections. They happen fairly quickly compared to, you know, a, a normal general election. And so, uh, you know, it does make you wonder, like, maybe they just feel like these races are uh, in hand. Like, they, maybe they just don't, they don't think Walker can pull off the comeback. I, I don't know. Does it... Do, do you think maybe they're getting too overconfident or, or is there yeah, something I else? Going? I mean, I, that seems pretty speculative to me. I'm not sure I would suggest that the gun control advocacy groups think they've sort of way out ahead. If anything, they're playing defense most of the time. And in a state like Georgia, they really haven't made any headway at all. So uh, as I said, I think their primary strategy is to try and figure out how best to support the Warnock campaign. And that may not involve sort of heavy duty exposure on the airwaves, especially in rural districts where, you know, he's trying to, lower margins that are going to generally go for Walker. Um, so, you know, I couldn't speak exactly to that, but it's also possible that the NRA just has more available disposable cash right now to put into this race. And that you know, every town's been running in more places or they just have less disposable income right now to deal with the issue. So that's also hard to know. That is a good point. We did see towards the end of the campaign season when they put in their last filings, we'll, we'll get more information uh, when they're, in their post-election filings that come out, uh, I believe on December 8th. Uh, and we'll, we'll of course be covering that and do uh, likely do a whole podcast on everyone's spending. But uh, we did see at the end of the, the midterms that um, the NRA had a much larger stockpile of cash on hand to work with. Uh, they don't seem to have spent most of that money in the closing days of the campaign. Whereas, you know, every town in Gifford's, didn't have money on their books. Of course, you can transfer money's fungible, so you can transfer it around between their different groups, which is all these gun groups are very competent at. They're all professionals. They know what they're doing with this kind of stuff. But that's a fair point. I mean, it could be that they spent a lot of their money in the general election. They just didn't save up enough for big spends in, in this runoff. But uh, yeah, that is something that we just don't know uh, at this point. Um, they haven't, of course, come out and said why. They haven't responded to our request for comment uh, on on this issue at, uh, as of right now. So, um, you know, this is a lot of uh, just kind of look at this landscape and figure it out ourselves. But, uh, but you know, I want to move on real quick here to the gubernatorial election and just looking back on that. You know, so we went over here the what's what's to look forward to. Uh, you know, you got a lot of spending from the NRA, not much from the gun control groups, but, uh, you know, Warnock does seem to be ahead right now. We'll see how that plays out. We'll just have to keep watching uh, that race for the moment. But one race we can look back on uh, with more of a definitive tone is the gubernatorial election. You had uh, Governor Kemp beat Stacey Abrams, the Democratic challenger. Uh, for a second time in a row, guns did, as we mentioned earlier, seem to play more of a direct role in that race. What What is your takeaway from that outcome? You know, I think that Governor Kemp certainly positioned himself uh, way out ahead nationally on gun rights. I think that's usually a winning issue statewide in Georgia. I think it's extremely important to the base. And I think there's a growing number of people, uh, especially, you know, newer firearms owners uh, for whom this is an important issue. At the same time, you know, there's something strange about the polling. I read a Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll that suggested that actually 
There was not even close to majority support among res respondents to a poll for the permitless carry. And that in fact, support for it had been going up, but that it had peaked, uh, at least so far it's reached about 35%. And then 65% of voters suggested that they opposed permitless carry. I don't think that reflects people's general orientation to firearms rights. I think many people support firearms rights. As to whether or not they supported permitless carry per se, I think that's less clear. And so one of the takeaways from this, I think, might be that while Brian Kemp is sort of looking for ways to push the envelope on gun rights and to sort of expand them, he may have run out of things that have sort of broad appeal. And so, you know, he's pushing something like permitless carry, where there are a lot of people who may be in favor of carry laws, uh, but are nervous about permitless carry in the current context, who, you know, when they think about all things considered, generally want to vote for somebody who's not going to um, impose new gun, uh, gun controls or gun restrictions. Stacey Abrams' agenda on this may not appeal to them, but it's not clear to me that they're actually uh, big backers in large numbers of, uh, you know, permitless carry. And so people may be voting sort of more generally on the idea of favoring gun rights and the right to carry, but not necessarily wanting to loosen up the ability to carry in terms of permitless carry. I don't know how that's going to play out. I mean, I think that this issue's settled in the state. Uh, we have this new law. It's not likely to be reversed. And um, it, it, Brian Kemp's been elected, so he's going to have time to work on you know, gun, uh, gun rights and other issues. But as to whether or not he wants to push the envelope a lot farther is not clear to me. I think also, we mentioned this before, he benefited a lot from being independent of Donald Trump. I think that this is a state that's purple, as you know, and that I think a lot of people feel good about what they would consider to sort of be a local Republican with local Republican focus and not somebody who's plugged into the larger debates about what's going on in the Republican Party nationally. And I think that while there's a lot of support for Donald Trump in Georgia, we're talking about the margin here again, right? We're not talking about huge margins by which the governor won and we're talking about a runoff in the Senate. Um, people are looking for what about those middle of the roaders? And a lot of those are Republicans who I think feel very comfortable with Brian Kemp, both because he's an incumbent he generally stands for things they care about, including gun rights, and they're not that interested in drilling down a lot of the details. And one thing they know about him that they like is he's independent of whatever might make them nervous in the National Republican Party. Yeah, that, I think that's really good analysis. You know, the, the there's probably a lot of gray area here. It's not like, oh, well, it's obvious that because he because Kemp su supported him past permitless carry and Abrams opposed it, that's why the race went this way. Now, I don't think that's too simplistic, of course. Uh, there's a lot more interesting, uh, you know, tidbits to talk about there. And permitless carry doesn't poll very well, uh, really nationwide or in most states, even where it's been implemented. Um, uh, but it is sort of, uh, you know, it does seem like in some of these red states, they're getting to a point where, you know, what do you do now? Like, you have a lot of the the policies in place that gun rights advocates want, especially the ones that poll very, you know, poll, poll much better. And so, you know. Plus you have Bruin. Where do you go from there? Right. You have, you have the Supreme Court basically locking them in. Mm -hmm. It's going to be much harder to roll these back, not as a matter of politics, but as a matter of law. The Supreme Court's emerging yep. Second Amendment jurisprudence really protects a lot of these advances. And I think that that also creates a amount of security. The other thing is, you know, there's a flip side of this story about uh, Kemp being tied to Trump, which is, I think that you know, Kemp was independent. I think that worked in his favor. I think Stacey Abrams is seen as very tied to the Biden administration and to the National Democratic Party and the sort of in particular, the progressive wing. And I'm not sure that served her as well in Georgia as independents might have. And so I think yeah. that in that sense, yeah. it was sort of a double boost. It seems to me that the candidates that have strong ties to sort of non-Georgia players, whether they're Democratic or Republican, 
probably are at a disadvantage at the margin to candidates who are seen as sort of more independent and focused just on Georgia. Yeah. And I think the permless carry thing is interesting, too, because like it doesn't pull well right now, but all of the governors who signed one into law won re-election this year. So it's not something that necessarily changes people's votes in the opportunity opposite direction, perhaps, uh, or at least not at the very top of their list of things that would. And uh, and of course, you know, the approval rating of permitless carry could increase over time if it if it doesn't lead to the sort of things that opponents, uh, you know, claim it will, you know, blood in the streets sort of uh, rhetoric you get. A yeah, lot I don't think that. anybody I don't think anybody's voting against someone who voted for permitless carry because the alternative isn't a candidate who says they want to keep the status quo, just roll back permitless carry. It's usually a candidate who wants to impose new gun restrictions licensing right. or back, you know, stronger background checks or other things that people don't, uh, you know, aren't in favor of. So I'm, you know, I just don't think that permitless carry is not going to be uh, a problem in that sense until there's a perceived sort of moderate position that basically is pro gun rights, pro caring, but with greater restrictions, there's too much polarization on the issue. And so I think people who are generally in favor of gun rights are not going to look askance at a gun rights measure that may go beyond what they feel comfortable with, as long as the alternative is something that they definitely don't feel comfortable with, which is greater controls on the right to carry. Yeah, I think that I think that really hits the nail on the head there as to the dynamic in, in that Georgia gubernatorial election. You know, Stacey Abrams, it did seem like at points tried to present a more moderate uh, position on guns than than even perhaps Warnock. Uh, for instance, where, you know, I know she, in comments to us, you know, we interviewed Kemp early on in the race and Stacey Abrams' campaign responded to our questions. And, and you know, it felt like her position was more, she doesn't like permitless carry, but um, the campaign tried to paint it as she's uh, more of a moderate on this issue. Like she wants some more restrictions. She doesn't like what Kemp is pushing to remove. Uh, but But then, of course, I think her comments herself, uh, you know, she made a couple comments about wanting to, um, you know, uh, outlaw more firearms, or the possession of more firearms. And, and and so I think it was hard for her to campaign to strike that balance. And ultimately, uh, most of their rhetoric was uh, more on the restrictive side and less on the we're just looking to keep things the way they are or or do minor changes, uh, if that makes sense. And it's probably and, and you're right. I think the the national perception of her as this sort of progressive hero, um, probably added to that too. Yeah. And I think also, you know, we, we don't have anybody who campaigns on the following position. I think things are basically where they ought to be and I don't want to move them any farther. I mean, that just doesn't make for good campaign copy. And so I don't think Stacey Abrams had a convincing case that basically she believed in things like campus carry and, you know, permitted carry, uh, you know, by right. And, uh, she well, she was worried about she just didn't want to go to permitless carry. I mean, that's just not a position that I think is it's too nuanced for one thing, sort of for the airwaves. And second, it's just not the kind of position that people take up. People run, you know, if they're not incumbents against the status quo. They don't say, basically, I just want to lock in where we are now. Uh, that's especially true when you're, you know, uh, your base is virulently opposed to where we are now. So I think that it's just a hard position. And I'm not sure it's a great issue for her to run on in Georgia. Uh, other than to try and turn out her base. But as far as appealing to the middle, I just don't think it's easy to make a convincing case that it's just permitless carry that she was worried about and then to like cleave off those voters. I don't think politics works that way. People have general ideas when they walk into the voting booth. This candidate is essentially going to protect my right to carry a firearm. 
and own a firearm under whatever conditions that might be. And that candidate wants to ban more gun designs and wants to make it harder for me to purchase one the next time I go to the store. And that's people, that's how people break it down. Uh, I think when you're in a legislative session, things are a little bit more nuanced, but in a general statewide campaign like this, I just don't think people are breaking things down that much. And candidates that try and create those fine distinctions have a hard time messaging. Mm, mm, that makes a lot of sense. Um, <clears throat> now, real quick here, uh, just to wrap us up, uh, you know, why don't we look forward a little bit? What do you see now with the results of the most recent election inside of Georgia, as far as the state legislature goes? Uh, where do you see gun policy moving in the state? Do you see it moving at all? I mean, you talked about earlier, there's not a lot of places left to go, right? Uh, I mean, I'm sure that there are, I'm sure that gun rights advocates in the state will have ideas, right? But what, what do you foresee happening there? You know, it's hard to tell. A lot of it just depends on the climate around firearms politics. I think if things are relatively quiet, I think a lot of people are basically satisfied. I don't know where we're going to see this. Uh, move a lot. But my experience, I've been in Georgia for seven years and every single year there's something new. One year it's campus carry, the next year it's permitless carry. I think there's been a lot of fighting about restrictions on permitless carry where you're not allowed to bring your firearm in. And there may be some agitation around those things. Again, I think we've probably gone past where the sort of mainstream gun rights supporters are, which is they wanted permitted carry. Uh, they wanted, you know, not a lot of uh, restrictions and they don't want a lot of money poured into the background check system. And they're not in favor of red flag laws, but you know, gun rights advocates seem to be wanting to push more. And I think one of the places left to push is there are restrictions on where you can carry your firearm, things that are sort of quasi public or private venues. Um, and what's the difference between those? And we may see uh, sort of a greater push for, for example, greater clarity, your ability to take your weapon to a public event, um, you know, uh, for example, to a ball game or other places like that. I'm not sure those are such popular issues among your bedrock gun rights, uh, you know, voters. I think a lot of those people basically feel that they have a right to purchase a weapon now in Georgia. They have a right to carry it without a permit, uh, you know, unless they have some strike against them. And that basically that's what they want to do with their firearm. They want to carry it around for self-protection. Uh, you know, on the furthest end of the spectrum, we've seen a couple of states pass uh, Second Amendment sanctuary laws. Uh, you know, we, we had the Second Amendment sanctuary movement that was more of a county-based movement and they're their resolutions were sort of uh, almost more symbolic in nature than they were legal. Uh, but since then, you've had a couple of states, including Missouri, uh, for instance, where they've passed the Second Amendment sanctuary laws that try to that also all kind of feel symbolic in a, in a certain sense that they're meant to address, like the potential of gun confiscation from the federal government down the line. But in practice, what they do is make it so that local law enforcement can't cooperate with federal law enforcement to enforce gun crimes unless there is an uh, accompanying state crime for that, which in practice, most state laws do mirror federal law on, you know, the big questions like felon in possession laws or involuntarily commitments. But you have seen some, uh, some of this create at least confusion, I would say, or at least, and perhaps even give maybe um, convenient excuses for some localities like in St. Louis where um, uh, they, they had a school shooting after the shooter had failed a background check, but the St. Louis chief of police there said that they couldn't prosecute. He claimed that they couldn't prosecute the, the attacker uh, after that 
failed background check because of this state state level sanctuary law. The governor obviously disagrees. I've seen legal experts from the state that disagree with the the St. Louis police as well. But obviously, it's created this situation, um, and, and so it's it's leading to perhaps unintended consequences like this. Do you think? That, but it is something that's very highly symbolic. Of course, people like the idea of, uh, you know, the state taking up to defend their gun rights, uh, even in a symbolic manner. That they like that pushing back against the federal government. I'm sure there's a lot of people who, who support that that sort of approach. Is that something we could see in Georgia, or is it? No, I'm sure there are people who are like that advocate this for Georgia. In Georgia, you know, we have advocacy for whatever's going on in the national gun rights movement. There are people here in you know, in Georgia on the front lines of it. This is a very strong gun rights state. On the other hand, I think these kinds of laws play extremely poorly. I don't think they serve the gun rights movement very well. I think uh, people, when things go, you know, when things go sideways in these situations, when you have something like Colorado Springs, where there was a red flag law that, you know, nobody really wanted to follow, or you have a background check that wasn't followed up because the local records aren't kept that much. You're talking often about places where tragedies occurred around firearms, and that doesn't play very well. I think most of the support for you know firearms carry here is premised on the idea that there are certain categories of people who won't have access to firearms. And if what we do is, is we expand the right to carry and we keep a strong infrastructure in place so that people who are you know pose a high risk, people with mental illness, criminal records, the kind of thing, the kind of people nobody wants toting guns around. We're probably going to continue to see continued support for gun rights. If we can, you know, if we expand the right to carry and then we have a general lack of enforcement around the kinds of controls to make sure that the people who are at high risk for carrying out criminal misuse of the weapons, we don't have that kind of infrastructure or local officials decide that they just don't want to be involved in enforcing those laws. I think that's going to erode support. And I actually think that's probably a tactical mistake. My sense is that mainstream uh, players in you know, firearms rights probably know this. And I think that a lot of what uh, the appeal holds is it's really part of a larger package of the rule of law. You know, I think the, the left has tried to paint gun rights as a kind of lawless, you know, Waco self-help movement. And in fact, I think your average Georgia voter who is in favor of gun rights is a person who also believes very deeply in the rule of law. That's probably one reason why it is that they favor Kemp marginally over you know, Trump-backed candidates is that for gun rights uh, advocates in, in the mainstream, this is all a package. It's all a package about your individual right to own a firearm and the rule of law and respect for law and a system that will make sure that firearms are not getting into the wrong hands. So I think the, these sort of movements, it's a little on the left, you know, like immigration sanctuaries, the idea of people sort of thumbing their nose at the rule of law and saying, well, we'd like an exception because we don't really want to go along with the pack. That just doesn't play well for immigration rights. And People who are generally sympathetic start to sort of peel off at that point. So I think that probably would be a tactical mistake here in a place like Georgia. That's interesting. And uh, so if, if that is, in fact, the majority of these sort of Georgia gun voters that exist, uh, do you think the legislature recognizes that and wouldn't push towards, uh, you know, the, this sort of Second Amendment sanctuary or even uh, something like uh, this sort of attempted nullification laws uh, regarding silencers and suppressors that you've seen in in places like Texas and, and Kansas. I think you might, think see, local, you might see local you might see local initiatives. There's clearly a variation across Georgia about people's attitudes towards the federal government and in some sense the rule of law uh, when it doesn't mm -hmm. go their way. But I think the Georgia legislature generally tries to cleave off the extremes both on the left and the right and to, and to try to kind of more moderate path. We had a long-term speaker of the house here who recently passed away 20 years 
heading the legislature, and he was famous for getting things through, things like religious liberty and firearms laws, uh, gun rights laws. Um, and that was largely because he was able to trim off at the edges to make sure that um, you know people felt generally comfortable in the mainstream with these. And I think that the people running the Republican Party in uh, Georgia, you know, who are right now controlling the state house uh, and the governor's office, I think these are people who understand that they don't want to go fringe. They want to basically maintain uh, the positions that they've staked out. And I think permitless carry may be something that doesn't have a majority of supporters, but it doesn't seem to me like a crazy fringe idea. I think the idea of basically saying that you're not going to enforce the background check regime uh, is probably something you're going to start to see people peeling off about. Right. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, they, and they did sort of take their time on permitless carry in, uh, in Georgia. They were the 25th state to adopt it. Uh, and it was four years after Kemp had promised to get it done. He did get it done, of course, but but they didn't rush through that process. So uh, it makes a lot of sense. Well, they, we really appreciate they, you they, coming on. They carried people with them, right? I mean, support for permitless yeah. carry went up over time. So they were very smart mm -hmm. about bringing people along. Yeah. So, you know, that what you're saying there, that analysis does does make a lot of sense to me as far as like they're not necessarily going to rush out and just try and pass something to pass something as a symbolic gesture unless they really know it's not going to anger people uh anger their constituents so uh i mean ideally that's probably probably how every legislature would operate right but but um but yeah i think that makes sense uh, especially you know with georgia's sort of uh become more of a purple state these days so uh they, they don't have as much wiggle room to the right anymore um but but we really appreciate you coming on and giving us this insight uh, from somebody who's who knows the topic and knows the state. Uh, can you tell people a little bit about where they could find your writing or, or follow you? Sure. You can find a lot of my writings on my faculty website at Georgia State University College of Law. So just look up Timothy Litton, L-Y-T-T-O-N, at Georgia State University College of Law. You'll find my webpage there and there's links to all my work. All right. Thank you, Professor Litton, for joining us. We're going to head over to the news update now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined, of course, by Reload founder Steve Gutowski. How are you this morning, Steve? Oh, I'm a little under the weather, but uh, good enough to do the podcast. <laughs> I always try, try to make it through. It's yeah. such a struggle. It's that time so of year. Long. Everyone seems to be getting sick right now. I know plenty of people <laughs> I know are under the weather, so it's just one of those things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, certainly could, uh, could be much worse things you'd have to do than... Uh, a podcast when you're not feeling great. Fair so, enough. <laughs> I'm pretty lucky. Um, but yeah, otherwise, uh, it's been a pretty busy week. Yeah. For uh, guns. So. It definitely was a busy week. Um, and among the stories making it a busy week, uh, you have a, a story about a poll that just came out covering the landmark Supreme Court decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, which of course... Uh, found where the Supreme Court, of course, found a right to carry a handgun or a gun outside of the house for self-defense. And we have some updated polling on what the general public thinks of that ruling, which you covered, if you want to let us know what that poll found. Yeah. So Marquette University, which is a, one of the most prominent pollsters out there, one of the top national pollsters. Um, you know, there's a couple of universities that, that have like a polling operation. They're one of the most notable ones. They did a poll asking about all kinds of questions about the Supreme Court and recent cases, uh, especially high profile ones. And of course, they asked about Bruin and they found that 64% of Americans approved of the decision um, and 35% and disapproved. So, uh, you know, very strong support for that ruling in particular. 
uh, from the American public. Interestingly, uh, this was despite the fact that the court has uh, relatively low marks uh, from the general public. I believe it was 66% disapprove of the way the court has uh, handled itself over the last uh, couple of years. And uh, so, so it's really not just a general support for the court, but people seem to view the Bruin decision in particular as a positive. Yeah, uh, no, that's definitely a big finding. Um, I think it sort of tracks, I would say, with a little bit of what we've been covering in terms of Americans' attitudes more generally towards, I think, the right to carry. Um, so I uh, talk about how over time, it's been about 40 years where the more, majority of the country didn't allow the right to carry. It's just Vermont and then a handful of other states. And then gradually you've seen nationwide now, all 50 states at least have some semblance of a right to carry a, a gun outside the home for self-defense. And I think that probably has something to do with normalizing it among the American people where a decision that just says, yeah, that's your right, doesn't exactly upset uh, people the way that perhaps some gun control advocates might have expected that to, to happen. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the broader scope of the ruling is really just that uh, effectively you can't block people from exercising their right to bear arms. Um, and so, the, and to be specific, the question they asked was about that general principle uh, of the, the right to carry a gun outside the home. And so it didn't get into all of the details of Bruin. Obviously, the there's the, the new standard that the court set in the case for how to decide future gun cases, uh, which is certainly still very controversial among activists, right? Among gun control activists and left-leaning academics are, are still very upset about the new standard that's in place that'll probably have a much larger impact than the specifics of this ruling itself. Uh, and the poll doesn't ask about that in particular. Um, so there's still, it'd be, still be great to get even more polling on the issue. It's really not something that gets polled a lot. Right. But uh, clearly Americans approve of the overall concept of, of what this court did in this case that, you know, uh, and their approval actually has increased since uh, July when they first asked this question. It's up, uh, I believe, seven points, well, eight points since July, seven points since September. And so that's a interesting trend as well. It's actually become more popular as uh, some of the effects have started to be felt, you know, you're seeing laws get blocked because of the, the Bruin ruling uh, beyond just gun carry laws. And, um, you know, you've seen even federal laws get blocked uh, because of this ruling. And, you know, really quickly, it's only been uh, six months, right, at this point, less than six months, really. And the effects on the legal landscape are already materializing and people have at the same time that's occurring have become more uh, supportive of the decision. So that, that's interesting for sure. Um, and it comes at the same time that people are becoming less supportive of the Supreme court overall. Um, you know, the Supreme court had a 60% approval rating um, or job, job approval rating, you know, just uh, about a year ago. And then uh, it seems, at least in the polling and from what Marquette is arguing, that the Dobbs decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and the abortion case is what's driving a lot of the 
dissatisfaction with the court. Uh, that ruling is much less popular than than Bruin, um, but people seem to have, you know, been able to compartmentalize their reaction to the various court rulings, and they're not just, uh, you know, dissatisfied across the board. They're really looking at each individual case differently, apparently. Uh, and, and the Supreme Court as an institution still has uh, large majority support, uh, even though people may not like the direction it's it went in the Dobbs case. Yeah, no, that's definitely an interesting point. I think it sort of speaks to perhaps the longevity of this decision, because, um, you know, future iterations of the court may be composed of justices that, you know, view Second Amendment jurisprudence different. But uh, when you have public opinion, this in favor of a decision, obviously, we like to think of justices being removed from public opinion, but they're human beings. They're still, of course, influenced by by broader trends like that. Um, so I think that does speak, at least for now, speaks well to the staying power of of that decision. Decisions like Heller, decisions like Bruin, where their basic holdings, talking about the right to keep a handgun or the right to carry a handgun for self-defense, have sort of become normalized and, and embraced by the culture. Um, I think you'll see uh, much more staying power for things like that because it has such buy-in from the public. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And that really, the court was a, a late mover on this stuff compared to right. public opinion. Because, you know, handguns were extremely popular by the time the court got around to ruling in Heller, uh, which effectively in practice just said that handguns can't be completely outlawed. And by, you know, by that point, they were nobody wanted to outlaw them uh, like they may have, according to, you know, Gallup polling decades back. You know, that was the initial big focus of. Um, you know, the, the current gun control movement, you know, the like the Brady groups were started as handgun control groups. And, um, you know, they've obviously shifted course completely since that time because that position just became completely untenable. And the court eventually caught up to this decades later. And as you alluded to earlier, gun carry used to be uh, concealed carry, at least used to be completely banned almost everywhere. And in the country. And then slowly over time, since the 1990s, it became uh, legal everywhere in the country uh, with the even the holdouts that got addressed in Bruin. It was technically legal to get a concealed carry license and carry a gun. And people, you know, they did issue them in most of those states. They just were extremely, extremely restrictive in who actually got permits. Uh, and that's really what the court effectively took issue with. Um, so really public opinion has, was moving well before the court got, I mean, even, you know, with concealed carry, of course, you had states get, move into uh, shall issue regimes for their permits. Uh, and then from there, they, a lot of states had already moved, uh, 25 states by the time the court ruled in Bruin had already adopted constitutional carry or permitless carry, um, which doesn't require a permit at all, right, uh, to carry a gun concealed. Uh, so uh, the court really isn't, hasn't been, at least to this point with its rulings, you know, a trendsetter. They've been reacting to where the public opinion is on, on firearms in this country. So it's not necessarily super surprising, right, that people generally approve of what they're doing. 
Right. And I think something interesting along those lines to watch is, like you said, they've traditionally been sort of a lagging indicator on whatever cases they take up. What we've been covering in recent years, very recently, sort of the diminishing support for assault weapon bans, even after big mass shootings. So it'll be interesting to see if they, a lot of people think that that could be one of the next big gun cases that the court takes up, whether it's, you know, a year from now, a couple of years from now. It'll be interesting to see what they do there because we've already started to see public opinion turn on assault weapons bans. And that could be very well be the next lagging indicator that the Supreme Court decides to take up. So definitely one to watch, I think. Yeah, certainly. And I think that it also uh, undercuts this effort to sort of um, try and counteract the Bruin ruling that you've seen in places like New York. And you're seeing now in in New Jersey and, and California as well. Uh, with these laws that basically just fly in the face of what the court had ruled, right. uh, because it doesn't seem very likely that uh, even even if the court were susceptible to um, public opinion shifts on this issue, uh, you know, obviously the, the public is largely on the side of the court in this area. So uh, it probably is that probably is further reason to think that it's not going to be successful these efforts to just kind of uh, thumb their nose at what the court ruled. Uh, And of course, I think it'll be interesting to see if the court, if and when the court goes out ahead of public opinion on some of these issues, like uh, are they going to get rulings because of the standard in Bruin, which is, which sets up a pretty high bar for gun laws to clear, uh, especially modern regulations. Are you going to get to a point where, you know, the court rules, on something that the public is is more split on, is less, <clears throat> you know, less uh, decided on uh, as far as gun policy goes. Uh, it haven't, hasn't happened yet. We've only gotten a couple of gun cases in the history of the Supreme Court. So uh, we're still super early in this jurisprudence, and uh, it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. No, I think that's but, a good point, yeah. Yeah, but that's all we've got for you this week. Thank you guys for tuning in to listen. If you want to support the show, please leave a review um, wherever you're listening to this. Like it on Facebook, share it, uh, subscribe to our Facebook channel. Uh, And if you want to go an extra step further to help us thrive here at The Reload, you can head over to thereload.com and buy a membership today. That's how we make our living (laughs) through those memberships. And uh, with uh, your support, we are able to bring you this kind of reporting. Plus... You get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and reporting that you won't get anywhere else. You'll get also early access to this podcast. You'll get it a day early, day before everybody else. And you'll have the opportunity to appear on the show as well. So head on over and check out our membership options today. Thank you.